Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Cynthia Salarizeta, founder of luxury brand House of Saka. Welcome, Cynthia. We're excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I know we've been trying this uh, for a couple years now, so I'm really glad to, to finally get you um, in this conversation. Me too. Me too. Thank you. So in addition to founding House of Saka, Cynthia is also the founder of the cannabis industry's newswire, Axis Wire. She is a co-founder of Green Market Media, which is currently the industry's most recognized cannabis finance news publication, Green Market Report, and its conference series, Green Market Summit, as well as co-founder of the network industry, Power Women. KCSA Strategic Communications acquired her leading cannabis and hemp public relations firm, Solar Media Group, after being in operation for just three years. She's a council member on Forbes Communication Council, as well as a contributing writer for Entrepreneur Media on the leading women and business of cannabis. Cynthia received her degree from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a certificate in political journalism from Georgetown University. Wow, Cynthia, congratulations on your incredible success in the industry. Thank you. Lots of hard work. Cynthia, you've had a long career in cannabis and you worked with multitudes of cannabis companies with your PR agency, and you've literally seen the worst and the best of it. What has this taught you about leadership when it comes to leading your team and the company culture at Saka? So I think that one of the challenges in cannabis is that there's still very much a culture of um, like the black market. So there's this underground culture that still kind of permeates throughout the industry. And I think that there's a lack of professionalism that's still an issue within our industry. And when you're new to the industry, it can be quite frustrating and quite challenging to um, try to, when you move from like a corporate environment and a functioning industry over to cannabis and things are like the wild west, I think it can just be overall challenging for anybody to manage um, <laughs> daily situations in business. And I think that that provided a level of experience that when it was time for Saka to, you know, kind of mold into the company culture that it has ultimately molded into. Um, basically, we all just took our experience. We now work with one another. I think that the challenges that this particular industry creates for business operators, as a result, <laughs> um, left me and my company and my business partners 
just very reliant on one another. It, it creates like a bond. Um, and you learn how to work with one another, especially well, because it's essentially like you guys against the world. And, you know, that mixed with um, a really strong emphasis on solid communication. I think these are the tools. So between the experience and solid communication, I think that the company culture at Saka has evolved into something pretty incredible. Awesome. Now, we're living in the time of a global pandemic, and you are now heading a company and advising your clients from a PR perspective. How has COVID changed the way that you lead your company and how you advise your clients? What are you focused on now? So as far as I'll start with um, leading a company. So for myself and my business partners in the middle of this pandemic, of course, this was uncharted territories for every single person alive today, for the most part. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple that I'm sure have faced um, some pretty devastating pandemic level situations, maybe in the Congo, but outside of those particular areas, our generation has not faced anything like this. So with that, this unprecedented, you know, event and all of the unknowns and uncertainty that comes with it also came a little bit of a change and a need to pivot in our communication strategies overall. Just in regards to leading the company, we've become more nimble, um, flexible, and open to pivot with ideas to meet new consumer demands. So for instance, um, leading a company through this, okay, well, we realize we're not gonna be able to expand the way that we had planned. So now we have to pivot. And maybe instead of expanding into another state, we're going to double down in our expansion throughout California, um, introduce new SKUs that um, have a price point that's maybe more comfortable to the times. Um, so as far as leadership is concerned, we've learned how to, to definitely roll with the punches. Um, as far as you know, advising clients on communication strategies, to manage their uh, entire message during this particular crisis. As I just mentioned, everything has been all new with this. So our regular playbook for managing crisis communications kind of altered. You know, how it used to be in the 80s and 90s tended to trend toward, it was not really favorable to take a stance in any sort of political or social justice or current affairs event, or it was almost like the kiss of death. Now, what we're noticing with current situations, as they are with tensions incredibly high and just everything being all new and, and you know, people just kind of reacting and responding to everything happening around us, um, people are now requiring companies to have a voice and take a stand. And I think that, you know, is something that we need, bless you. <laughs> I don't know if that was you sneezed, if so, bless you. Um, I think that, I think overall right now, the approach should be caution 
I, I think everybody who's getting ready to release any sort of statement, whether it be, by the way, personal on your personal channels or your professional, because those days where they're separate no longer exist, um, you know, whether you take these stances or, or not, just make sure you think it through and you discuss it with your business partners um, to make sure that everybody is comfortable with the message that's going out there. And, and more so than normal, I would probably um, seek the counsel of a professional communications representative and possibly even legal if you're running a public company and, you know, present your stance in a way that, you know, tries to reduce discrimination. So there's a way to take and make your voice heard without necessarily discriminating against an entire other group of, of people. So just err on the side of caution, think through your response, but you definitely need to take a stand these days. Um, and whether you choose to be on any side or no side or whatever, you have to now voice that as a business. That's really great advice because, you know, I've been advocating for a long time that uh, the social media world will force transparency on a company's real values. And it hasn't really, you know, it's happened a little bit here and there. We have seen companies over the last decade who've made terrible errors, who've paid the price through social media. But you're right, we're in a new era now where it isn't just those who are brave enough to step out. It's demanded of, of almost every company to have an opinion. But it's forcing this transparency. And a lot of companies are realizing that maybe we are not so great in our hiring practices. Maybe there is some underlying uh, discrimination here that we haven't dealt with. How, as companies come to these moments of awareness and realization and then find themselves saying, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to move forward. I don't want to get us in trouble, but I also can't take a stand without revealing some things that we don't necessarily want to reveal about ourselves. What do you say to companies in those positions? How do they start that journey to really come in alignment with the times? You know, that's a very good question. And there, those companies that have those concerns, they're very valid concerns. So whether we like it or not as society or the general public, um, whether we want to hear somebody has a side or whatever the case may be, when you're running a public company and you have shareholders to, um, you know, that essentially rule your every move, there's 100% really not much room for a company to start taking a drastic stand against any one situation. Um, and, you know, may, maybe that's unique to public companies, but I have found those particular clients to be the ones who are presenting the questions that you've just asked. You know, how do we approach this mm -hmm. without risking our company's reputation? um and causing any problems in those types of instances you know you find out what's legal if it is a public company then you talk to your your legal side and they usually help guide the communications team with the language so there's a way to remain neutral 
without discouraging most of your consumers. And, and I don't discourage my clients from taking that route. It's, and yes, it's a safe route, so it's less risky and there's nothing noble about that for the most part. But when you have shareholders to um, consider, then you really don't have much of a choice. We all wish as business owners that we could be a Patagonia or, or um, you know, what is it, Mr. Myers or Mr. Dr. Broners or whatever, where we can just take millions of dollars and, and like Ben and Jerry's, we can just introduce a new line of, of um, you know, product that's called, you know, Men in Blue or whatever for the current event it's not realistic. A lot of us can't really take those risks because of our investors and our shareholders and our business partners and the people that we're held accountable to. So when that's the case, there is, you know, there is neutral language that you can present, but don't be surprised when there might possibly be some backlash um, on social media or whatever platform people can get to you that you're not taking a stand. And I think that's just one of the choices you have to make. You, you're not going to, there's no solution where you walk away completely free and clear. You have to make a decision either way. Am I not taking a stance? That's a stance within itself. And that's okay, like I said, but you have to think that through so that everybody in your organization knows how to then respond when people question them for that. And then you can make sure you have some talking points um, written up that everybody can can go over so they understand um, you know, what the message is. And then you can speak with your internal team as to why. Um, and then if you choose to take a stance, understand that will also provide a backlash. Like I said, there's not one solution that's free and clear where nobody's going to have to deal with any sort of backlash doesn't matter. Just prepare whomever it is on your team who handled your communications. Um, and, you know, be cognizant that times are tense and people have a microscope because on and anything you say, because they literally have nothing else to do in the day. It's just what's happening in the middle of a global deadly pandemic. Um, and, you know, talk to your communications people and you know, move forward. I don't think it's anything to be scared of, but you definitely have to be smart about it. You've been in the industry a very long time, as we said earlier. You have been working in a public relations capacity with companies long before we reached the point of legalization that we're in today across the country. So when you started in the industry, there was a tremendous amount of stigma. There were not organizations to support women or tribes around you to support what you're doing from that female perspective. You've also started a company that's basically pioneering. There's no other uh, wine, beverage, uh, cannabis-infused beverage on the market in California. You were the first. Well, so how do you technically, when technically Rebel Coast was able to get to market before us. So that would be, okay. that would be the truth behind that. Just for okay. So second, second. still in a vertical and in an industry, which is destined to be massive, you were at the starting lines. So inevitably you've had more barriers and issues to deal with than anyone that will come behind you. It's part of the pain of being first in line. So with all of these experiences you've had in this industry, which have been a climb and a fight and a pioneering move on your part, 
how do you stay inspired? How do you stay passionate about what you're doing when you've had so many things to overcome just to get where you are today? Well, that's a great question. Um, and thank you for asking that. I'm not sure. To be honest, I don't really have a clear answer for that. I think that when you understand what cannabis actually is and then what it represents to our culture, what it represents to patients, um, what it represents to everyday lifestyle for so many people around the world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you kind of see the injustice in what happened. And that alone just, I think, you know, helps motivate you because you know what you're doing is correcting something that was criminal, <laughs> Pro prohibiting cannabis the way that we've seen over the last uh, 70 years is shocking at best. You know, and I think that there's just something exciting about being in an industry that's brand new, um, seeing the potential of it to grow globally and change the lives of so many people and to know that that you've worked with it, at least when it became legal, because I would never act like I've been part of this industry hustling, you know, on farms or advocating down at, um, you know, the local courthouse. I, I didn't. I stepped in seven years ago when Colorado moved to recreational. Um, yeah, I just think it's exciting times for women. I mean, we have an opportunity in this industry that we just simply have not had in any other industry to date. In theory, we probably could have gone a little harder in the dot-com era. Um, but, you know, women are still establishing themselves in the workforce. And I think, you know, 20 years later, we were ready. So here we are, and it was a level playing field. So it was exciting to know that we had opportunities, both as a female and just as an individual within a new industry. If you try to enter into an existing industry, like, so for instance, if I try to enter into the wine industry, unless I have like $10 million and contacts that are like family friends running most of Napa, the chances of being able to start a new brand and dominate are pretty, I don't want to say slim, but definitely um, you're a lot less likely to have a successful wine brand in the wine industry than you are, I believe, in the cannabis industry. I don't know if that's true. Interesting. But in my head, there's less competition, or at least there was a few years ago. Um, so you had more room to make mistakes and yet keep going if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. um, where I think other industries are so saturated and established um, that it's much more difficult to, to make inroads and really make a splash. I don't really know if that's 100% true um, or factual. That's how I see it. So well, you, you're sitting on both sides of the fence now for all intents and purposes. So I'd say you've got a pretty good view of what's going on. I mean, it's very interesting. I haven't, you know, we usually only hear about the challenges in creating a cannabis brand, but there are some benefits as well. And the opportunity and the playing field is pretty level. But let's talk about, a little bit more. You started to touch on this about being a woman in the industry. What barriers have you encountered as a woman working in the industry? And then what have you encountered as a woman CEO working in the industry? 
So I have not really run a company outside of cannabis. I had like a PR firm in a way, like I was doing a freelance PR maybe like 15 years ago for like a year, but that was the closest I came to really running a company. So it really didn't count. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to say outside of cannabis, but the, the challenges that I have within cannabis come across mainly are centered around fundraising. I think it's like women receive point zero three percent or something of all available venture capital and then you add in a still federally regulated industry so now the opportunity to access capital went from already crazy reduced to even further because most people don't even want to take the risk to invest in the industry so if the very few people that are investing are normally going to go invest with, you know, people who are familiar to them, which is normally, you know, white males. And I'm not um, picking white males out for any other reason than this is just factually how the statistics present um, reality. So for the most part, you know, raising capital and cannabis is quite the challenge for all females. But I think that's the one area where, you know, I can actually say I've, you know, I've encountered some difficulty like anyone else, but outside of that, the benefits of operating within the cannabis industry, there's just, there it's, it's easier to make moves in cannabis as a female, I would imagine opposed to, like I said, maybe going into oil and gas and trying to make moves. But, you know, we're, as women, we're just always going to face those those challenges with getting money. That's something that I think over the next decade should improve, um, but we'll see. You and Deborah Borchardt launched Industry Power Woman a few years ago. And what was your motivation to launch a community for women movers and shakers in cannabis with everything else that you have going on Taking on building a community is no small feat. What, what led you to do that? So there's a, there were a few factors, contributing factors, that led to Deborah and I making the decision to create the network, Industry Power Women. First and foremost, um, with Deborah and I having the media outlet, that gives us large mailing lists, large exposure to people. Um, and it gives us a little bit of influence. When you look at what any entrepreneur needs to have a successful company or to successfully raise money, um, normally they need, for a successful company, you need money, you need media, and you need a great reputation. These are three things that are required for most successful companies. Um, me having the PR firm and then having Deborah and I having our influence that we had within media, we had, you know, at our fingertips, just a network of contacts that were valuable. Simultaneously around that same time, we watched women grow completely implode. So we knew, in addition, that we as an industry had an advantage as females over every other industry. And we held something like 27% leadership, which was 
by far more than any other industry, which was something around like 23 or whatever for leadership and, and owners. And we started to slip. This was about two years ago when cannabis started to move into this public market feel. Um, and all of the sudden, Wall Street started paying attention and all of these people who simply would never even think to invest in cannabis started stepping in and investing. And as I explained earlier, once that happens, they tend to start investing in a very specific type of person. So yeah, so Women Grow was imploding at the time. And we were witnessing the decrease in leadership percentage for females. That's where I was. Um, we, we were beginning to witness a decrease from the 27% leadership hold that we had. And it tend, we were noticing that it was in line with institutional capital entering the industry. So what we needed more than ever at that moment was an organization such as Women Grow um, so that we could get the female entrepreneurs that showed the most potential for those of us who had whatever little time that we did have to pay attention to females to help them out, to get them going so we could retain our leadership position within the industry. It was required at that moment. And if we could put something together, something as simple as a network that could provide access to the resources. So what do you need most when you're raising capital? You need to be in media. A Forbes feature is like gold. Um, what do you need when you're raising capital? You need introductions to funds. You need introductions to money. And we had all of this access and we just turned around and said you know what why don't we host brunches why don't we host um an award show every year bring women together highlight them but allow them in that moment to connect with one another make the introductions that are necessary it's you know at the time deborah was writing for forbes so when we found somebody that that required a highlight then we went ahead and we highlighted them and we found we did a lot of good and it was one of the best um decisions i think that both deborah and i did make and i wish we could do even more but you know time is limited well one of the things that you have found time to do is to produce the 100 most important women in cannabis list every year for the last few years. And I would love for you to talk a bit about what inspired you to do that, because I know it has drawn some controversy, even though the intention behind it was so pure and helpful to women, yet there's been a bit of a backlash, but it's been really interesting how you and Deborah have dealt with it. So can you give us some insight into why you started the list and how you're dealing with it going forward to make sure that it is equitable, but still honors the women who deserve the, the acknowledgement? Well, um, you know, I think that's a good question because these lists tend to get honestly a really bad rap. Um, and it's, I think that's a understanding that reaction is natural because it's a very exclusive by nature type of act. When we started the 100 most important women in cannabis for Green Market Report, it actually had a very specific start. So about a week prior to us making the decision to come out with it, High Times had introduced their 
you know, 20 most influential women in, in weed or whatever they had done at that time. And it was one of the first lists that I was actually included on. So even though I'm in PR and, you know, this is, I get all of my clients on these lists, we help create them. Um, you know, I had never really been on one myself. So I had never actually known really the power behind them until it, I was on one. And, you know, it was such an incredible feeling. It was embarrassing um, in a way because I wasn't used to being kind of in the spotlight like that. But my father like bragged about it to his friends. And I cannot explain, even at my age, um, just how proud that made me feel. And it was an experience and a feeling that I remember thinking, oh, I hope everybody gets a chance to, to see this because it just felt good. It felt like all that hard work, years of just, you know, dealing with crazy in this industry, it was nice to be recognized. And instead we had seen this, you know, backlash of just really nastiness and hate just spun out throughout the industry. And I knew how special it had made me feel. So I wanted to, to show a lot of these women exactly how this felt. So we decided to create one ourselves and we wanted to make it as big as possible, but small enough to where it still held its credibility. And that's kind of how we started the 100 most important in women in weed. And just like I um, predicted, the women who were most upset about that high times list were on this list and wound up calling me, crying me, crying and thanking me, telling me that they put it on their resume, telling me, you know, that their parents were really proud and telling me that after all their years, decades, some people, and that's the thing. There's some people who have been working in this industry for 20, 30 years. They are the people who deserve the recognition, but you can't get upset at a publication if this publication doesn't even know that person exists. Do you know what I mean? In all fairness, yeah. to get onto those lists, you probably need to speak with the writer or know the writer or know somebody at the publication or know a PR person. I'm not saying that doesn't seem unfair. I'm sure that it does, um, but it is the way it is. And there's ways to, to get in front of these people without having to hire a PR person easily. So, and that's what, for instance, industry power women is for. Women would call, okay, how do I get on a list like that? And we divulge the secrets and then put you right in contact with the writer who does them. Now you've just submitted your bio to them. That is exactly how industry power women worked, for example. Mm, I love it. Well, I think the list is really important because it is a list that comes from within the community that highlights women who are really working hard and deserve the acknowledgement. And, you know, there's nothing that feels as good as being seen. And as women, we tend to just put our head down and work and worry about everyone else. So I really do appreciate your list every year. And I hope that this conversation clears up any of that controversy and so that women understand the motivation and can really get behind it and support it. I agree. And, you know, I think that what people don't understand is that to an outsider or to an investor or to somebody who you're, whom you're trying to influence any specific way for your business, um, if they Google your name and you pop up on one of these lists, that looks impressive. No matter what, it just is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that for people who are trying to, you know, step up 
in their game for their career, or if they are starting a business, um, these lists help improve your resume. And then once you get to where you're going, okay, remove that from your resume. Maybe you don't necessarily need it because you've been doing what you're doing for 20 years. Great. But everybody utilizes things like this at a different time period for different reasons. But at the end of the day, it truly highlights and elevates somebody's hard work. How could that ever be a negative? Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for producing it. As long as I have known you, which I guess has been about three years now, you've been an advocate for gender inclusion and diversity. It's actually how you and I came together was around the topic of gender inclusion. And you have used your social media platform to raise awareness of racial injustice and to celebrate women of color in our industry. So I'm curious, how have the recent Black Lives Matter protests, the calls for racial justice, how has this made you reevaluate or change your leadership? You know, that's an interesting question. And I would say that it's made me a little more thoughtful in my approach to almost anything in that right now, tensions are so high. We have no idea what somebody is going through at home, um, you know, where they used to working their entire lives and they had children, but the children were going to daycare or they were going to school. Um, and you know, now all of a sudden you've got three kids running around in the background screaming. And so people are just a little more overwhelmed on every level. And we don't know what anybody's going through behind closed doors. So I think that I've personally calmed down a little in my approach to leadership. And I think right now requires a lot of compassion and empathy. I think it's important for people to lead by example all of the time. There's never a situation where you shouldn't be, but right now more so than ever. What I'm curious about is really, you know, taking someone like yourself who, regardless of whether it was trendy or not, you've never passed up an opportunity to highlight the struggle of others, especially women of color in our industry. Has everything that's been going on today, have the, the calls for racial justice, the defunding the police, the, the protests, has this changed things for you and how you advocate or how you lead your company? Has it created more of a sense of urgency? Has it awoken something in you that you didn't even realize before? Because when you, you know, it's impacted a lot of people in a way that they've just kind of woken up, but you've been awake. So I'm curious what this has done to you on a deeper level as a leader. What has this done? So How has it changed you? It hasn't changed me much in that, you know, like you mentioned, I don't know, I've always kind of been this way. I didn't wake up one day and realize, oh, Black Lives Matter. No, they're all my friends and... <laughs> This is, you know, I didn't start all of the sudden realizing that um, an entire portion of our population are real people. Um, what this has done, however, has really just disturbed me to my core. This entire situation over the last couple years and specifically in the last um, couple months has highlighted just how bad racism actually is in our country. And as naive as I feel, 
you know, as woke as I thought I was, I simply just did not realize the extent of it. And that's scary. It's concerning. It's bizarre. And it's sad. And I think that the overwhelming nature of just realizing that has been extremely upsetting. I don't I don't know if it's changed my leadership ability beyond just being more compassionate and empathetic, but it's it's definitely just really disturbing to to see the truth. I guess that I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I when we were you and I are about the same age. We were we're Gen Xers and we were raised to believe that racism was over. Sexism was over. Yeah, and it's the most horrible thing, fascism. These are all things we were mm-hmm. raised to oppose. Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden we're being told that anti-fascism is domestic terrorism. It's all very wild. It's very um, it's very confusing. And I think that, you know, the country might be better off with different leadership style in the Oval Office. And, and I believe that. What opportunity does cannabis, the cannabis industry have to change, to change this reality that we're living in? Do we have the ability to, to make change that other industries don't, to be a leader the way we're trying to lead with women being able to have a seat at the table from the beginning? Can we also do this with racism in our industry? I mean, I don't see why not. That's kind of what we've done in our industry from the start is kind of show the other industries what is possible. Um, I don't think we're perfect by far, (laughs) but I think when it does come to gender equality and opportunity, our industry has definitely been a leader in that regard. Do I think that we're going to be as efficient and potentially experience as much growth as we could if we were more inclusive? (laughs) No, I don't think we will. I think by ignoring half your population, whether it be because of the color of their skin or their gender, I can't think of anything less productive. Just really archaic. I don't know. It's it's a very intense subject. You know, I look at the, the moves that we can make in the industry. We have social equity programs, we have programs for minorities to help them build their businesses, but is this enough? You know, and I don't know, and I don't know that that question can be answered, but I hope that we can start to really look at cannabis as the opportunity for women, the way that, that we have by creating our communities and recognizing this is an industry we're building from the ground up. We can build our place in this industry, as opposed to having to fight our way in once it's already been established, that we can also view the path for women of color and people of color to have the same experience, that they get to build this industry for their needs right along with the rest of us. So I'm grateful to have women like you leading this industry. I think your voice and your intellect and your experience are so valuable. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Um, Before we close, do you have any advice for women who are leading companies in the cannabis industry? Yes, I think that right now we're experiencing really turbulent times and things are going to get very difficult. Um, Run as lean as you can. There is no shame in just 
keeping your company alive until we can get through um, this crisis. Stay strong and just keep going. Don't let all of this discourage you. Just keep working. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> give up. I could go on for days. Um, just well, well, it's yeah. true. Our priorities have changed, haven't they? It's yeah. no longer about being that the company that is the most successful. It's about being the company that's still alive. Alive. Yep. So just keep going. If you can get through, if you can survive through this horrific time period and make it out the other end, um, there's brand equity in that. So just stay alive and good luck. And if anybody needs anything, please let us know at Industry Power Women. We are happy to help however we can. Would you like to tell us how we can reach you in other ways if we're interested in learning more about Green Market Report, about Sokka Wine, or any of the other incredible projects you're working on? Sure. You can find Green Market Report at greenmarketreport.com or hash, I'm sorry, not hashtag. Um, our handle is at Green Market Report. And then you can find House of Sokka at houseofsokka.com or on Instagram or social media at Infused Sokka. Or me personally, you can find me on any social media channel, but specifically on Twitter at Cynthia Marie 78, which was a mistake, clearly, because now people know my name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Cynthia. It's been a really great conversation. I appreciate you bringing your truth and all of the great wisdom that you have to share with women in the industry. And I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much, Kira. You have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.